from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. My name is Ben, and I'm a 2L here at Loyola and an associate editor with The Podvocate this year. On this week's episode, Supreme Courting Part 1, I discuss the seminal U.S. Supreme Court case U.S. v. Booker. I, along with my guest, Professor Dean Strang, dive into the details of the case. We discuss what led Professor Strang to it in the first place, as well as the long-standing implications of the two-part ruling handed down by the Supreme Court in 2005. Please be sure to tune in for part two of the series coming soon. Subscribe to the Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our Instagram at the Podvocate. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Podvocate. I'm Ben, and this is part one of Supreme Courting. I am joined here by distinguished professor in residence, Professor Dean Strang. Welcome to the Podvocate. We're happy to have you. Good to be with you. So before we dive into United States v. Booker, which is you know the big topic of today's podcast, um, I wanted to start with a bit of an icebreaker, just bring you down to earth a little bit and ask what your favorite class in law school was and why. Well, I've never been much above the earth to begin with. Um, but, I beg to uh, differ. My... I loved First Amendment. I took a seminar in the First Amendment. I thought that was terrific. And my other, the other course that stands out, um, believe it or not, is first year property. Not because I loved the subject matter, but because that was the first law professor with whom I really connected. And he, for whatever reason, he helped me see the pattern. Of, of American law that we were beginning to study and became my first mentor in law school. He invited me to be his research assistant after my first year in law school. And I was, you know, uh, it was fortuitous that I agreed to do that. I mean, that was a, it was a good choice on my part when he offered me that. Um, so when I look back on, you know, favorite law school class or classes, the substance of the First Amendment had something to do with that, but that also was a terrific professor. Um, so in some ways, I'm I'm telling you inadvertently who my favorite professors were. I mean, school. the professors make the class. I mean, really especially can. in law school. Yeah, they really can. Not that the substance is unimportant, um, but when I look back on it, it, it's mostly the professors, not the subject matter that I remember. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing. And I think now I'd like to dive into the topic of today, which is United States v. Booker. It's a Supreme Court case from 2005 that you sat second chair on. Um, And just for the listeners to give a broad overview, um, part one of Supreme Courting is going to cover the case. It's going to cover Sixth Amendment precedent. It's going to cover sentence enhancements, um, federal sentencing guidelines, and then part two of Supreme Courting is going to cover 
the experience um, of giving a oral argument in front of the Supreme Court, preparing to give oral argument in front of the Supreme Court, and overall what it's like um, being in front of the nine. So just to dive in, first question, I think just to give everybody a foundation, um, I was hoping we can kind of like brief the case, like a quick summary of the facts that led the case to the Supreme Court. The, the case in the U.S. Supreme Court that's known as United States against Booker was two consolidated cases. One of them was the prosecution of Freddie J. Booker. The other was the prosecution of Duke and Fan Fan in the District of Maine. The Booker end of that was where I was involved. Freddie Booker um, had a number of prior uh, criminal convictions, including one prior drug conviction at least. He was found in Beloit, Wisconsin, which is in the Western District of Wisconsin, with a little over 92 grams of crack cocaine, cocaine base, in a duffel bag, went to trial, uh, and the jury convicted him of possessing the duffel bag with the crack cocaine, rejecting his defense that the bag wasn't his. At sentencing, the trial judge determined that Booker actually was responsible for, had what was called, what is called under the sentencing guidelines, relevant conduct of about seven times as much crack cocaine. So the judge made a, a judicial finding at sentencing that the, the number, uh, the weight of the crack cocaine was not just 92 plus grams, but more in the range of you know 640 or 650 grams of crack cocaine. That increased the sentencing guideline range that Freddie Booker faced. The judge also made a judicial finding in sentencing that Freddie had obstructed justice. That added two more points and thus raised again the uh, relevant offense level and thus sentencing guideline range. At the time, the United States sentencing guidelines were mandatory as they originally were enacted to be. So the effect of that raised the maximum sentence Freddie Booker could receive under the guidelines dramatically. Um, and, and indeed also raised the minimum, but that, that was less important ultimately in the constitutional question. So um, Booker wound up with a sentence of um, 30 years when had the judge not made those two aggravating findings, factual findings that increased his guideline level, the maximum sentence would have been 262 months, so uh, 21 years and change. He appealed um, to the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which you know covers the Western District of Wisconsin and six other districts. Um, had a magnificent, very skilled trial lawyer appointed to represent him in the district court. That lawyer, Chris Kelly, stayed on for the appeal. Chris had preserved this Sixth Amendment issue about whether judges could find 
facts by preponderance of the evidence that would increase the maximum sentence someone faced. Uh, that was the centerpiece argument, not the only argument, but the centerpiece argument on Booker's appeal. By that time, the U.S. Supreme Court had decided a case concerning the Washington state sentencing guidelines and had struck them down because they permitted judicial fact-finding on a preponderance of the evidence to increase the maximum sentence under the guidelines that Washington state used in criminal cases. So there was a very uh, strong argument that the federal sentencing guidelines were indistinguishable from the Washington sentencing guidelines. And there was great excitement um, and anxiety on the prosecution side, mostly, that the federal sentencing guidelines could be the next to be struck down on this line of Sixth Amendment cases that most people describe as having begun in 2000 with a case called Apprendi versus New Jersey. The Seventh Circuit was on to this, obviously, was following this closely. The three-member panel included both Judge Posner, who many listeners will recognize uh, by name, and Judge Easterbrook, who continues to sit on the Seventh Circuit and also is a is a very prominent American federal judge. That's quite day. an intimidating dynamic duo. And the, the case was argued. Um, and three days later, the court reached a decision, released it in TypeScript, didn't even wait for it to be typeset, um, issued a decision holding that Booker and his lawyer were right that um, mandatory federal sentencing guidelines as they then existed were invalid under the Sixth Amendment because they permitted an enhanced sentence based only on judicial fact-finding by preponderance rather than on facts that a jury had found beyond a reasonable doubt. Judge Easterbrook dissented, so it was a two-to-one decision. Um, <laughs> Easterbrook's dissent uh, decried uh, how the last sentence in his dissent decried how the majority decision had, quote, discombobulated close quote, the federal criminal docket everywhere and expressed uh, a wish that our superiors would step in and soon. Um, <laughs> and, and indeed they did. The United States uh, Solicitor General petitioned for certiorari. Uh, that was promptly granted and the case was consolidated with the fan fan case out of Maine which, by the way, just to show you how what a remarkable moment in time this was, the U.S. Supreme Court plucked that out of the First Circuit. That hadn't even been argued or briefed in the First Circuit yet. They were just the, waiting on it. The U.S. Supreme Court, at the request of the Solicitor General, just took it essentially straight from the district court and consolidated it with Booker. Um, just because I do feel like, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously two cases consolidated, two very different paths to the Supreme Court. I feel like it's quite, un I feel like Booker's case is more of a usual path, obviously, to the Supreme Court with Fan Fan being a little unusual that they kind of plucked it out of the district court like that. But I can see Fan, why they Fan did Fan so. was very unusual. Fan Fan was very unusual. I, I'm sure there are other times when the Supreme Court has taken a case before 
the Intermediate Federal Court of Appeals has ruled on it. I'm sure there are, but I don't know personally of such a situation. Fan Fan was a little bit unusual too, because, you know, his district judge looking at the case out of Washington, Blakely against Washington, his district judge had ruled, yeah, I, I don't think I can increase his sentencing guideline range consistent with the Sixth Amendment on facts that I would find. And so that sentencing judge over the government's objection had said, the maximum sentence I can impose is the top of the guideline range based on the facts the jury actually found beyond a reasonable doubt. So the government lost in the district court in Fan Fan. The government won in the district court in Booker's case where the district judge just you know, rather quickly and um, dismissively rejected the Sixth Amendment argument that uh, Booker's lawyer made in the district court. So I guess before we dive into the two, I think, broad topics that obviously you've mentioned a couple of times, which are sentencing enhancements and federal sentencing guidelines, um, for the listeners, can you describe a little bit a little bit about how you got involved in this case? You were in Wisconsin at the time, right? I was the federal defender uh, for both districts in Wisconsin at the time, both the Eastern District of Wisconsin and the Western District of Wisconsin, which meant, meant nominally I was the person who appointed lawyers under the Criminal Justice Act to represent indigent accused if our office, if the federal defender office, couldn't represent those people either because of a conflict or because of workload. So in that sense, I nominally, I had some responsibility over all court-appointed lawyers, which would have included Chris Kelly. Now, I had not been involved in the Booker case personally, and our office had not from the outset, but I was watching this after the Blakely decision this issue was getting a lot of attention. It was front and center, both in the Department of Justice on the prosecution side and in all federal defender or federal public defender offices around the country. So I was watching this. And when the Booker decision came down in the Seventh Circuit, three days after the case was argued, sort of almost unheard of speed, I, I was aware of it that day when it came down. You know, I, at the time, followed Seventh Circuit decisions daily. And, um, you know, I knew Chris. I was a casual friend of Chris Kelly's, uh, Booker's lawyer. And I called him and said, you know, Chris, um, this thing look, looks like it's really quite likely to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court given the way Posner wrote the majority and Easterbrook's dissent was written, uh, you know, would you like the resources of our office? Would you like us to get involved to help with briefing or, you know, any any additional work? And Chris, Chris was happy, you know, to have that help. Um, so I got involved personally at that point and also brought in one of the associate federal defenders for research and briefing support. And the, the initial step that the government sought was a, was a rehearing in the Seventh Circuit, which I think probably was just a way to tread water 
until it could file a certiorari petition and the U.S. Supreme Court could decide whether to take the case or not. But there, there was going to be supplemental briefing and a possible rehearing in the Seventh Circuit that the government was initiating. And look, just as a matter of reality, when the Solicitor General asks federal courts, district court, U.S. Court of Appeals level, especially to do something, there's a really high likelihood that the federal court is going to do it. Yeah, um, I think. <laughs> you know, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, which is where we associate the Solicitor General with practicing mostly, or, or the Solicitor General's office, her office with practicing, that's a lot less certain that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do what the Solicitor General is asking, certainly on, on the substance of the question or the merits. But in the lower courts on procedural issues, if the Solicitor General is hopping in, taking the case over from the United States Attorney's Office, local to the case, you, you know, there's a really good chance that, that the federal judges are at least procedurally going to do what the Solicitor General is proposing. Um, so I, I thought it made sense, and Chris thought it made sense, to get the Federal Defender's Office directly involved. So I became co-counsel at the rehearing stage in the Seventh Circuit and then continued on in that capacity once the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case with Chris remaining the lead lawyer. That was only right. He had had the case from the beginning. He had tried it. You know, he's the one who knew Freddie Booker personally. He had done, he preserved the issue, briefed it magnificently, done the work in the Seventh Circuit. So... He had every right and expectation, uh, and it was right to have him remain, you know, the the lead lawyer, so to speak. And then we were providing help, um, you know, from the rehearing forward through the U.S. Supreme Court. So how did it go at the rehearing? Uh, the court never had the rehearing. The U.S. Supreme Court acted very quickly in granting certiorari. This was in the middle of the summer. Booker came down in the Seventh Circuit on like July 9th, Interesting. 2004. And so, you know, the Supreme Court is not in session, right? It's not in term in July. And often the justices are off doing whatever they do in the summer, teaching, traveling, you know. Driving um, RVs, going, taking private jet flights. Yeah, <laughs> whatever huge, it may be. Usual. Whatever their jam is, right? They're off. They're out of Washington often in the summer, in July especially, but but they obviously have ways to communicate and act when they need to. And emergency petitions, for example, on on uh, uh, death row cases come up twelve months a year. So the court acted very quickly. Nobody knew whether it would, but it did act very quickly to grant certiorari, consolidate our case with Duke and Fan Fan's case and set an abbreviated briefing schedule. So we've covered kind of the path to the Supreme Court, and I think we're going to get into a little bit about the process for preparing and the experience um, in court in our part two. But for the part one, I wanted to keep talking about some of the legal topics and the legal issues that the court actually ended up deciding upon. So to start, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about sentence enhancements. Um, and the first issue discussed at length by the Supreme Court in their 70-page opinion 
is the constitutionality of federal sentencing enhancements. And you've mentioned them a couple of times so far, but I'm hoping you can just explain to the listeners what they are um, and exactly what the Supreme Court kind of ended up holding. Let me back up just a little bit, if you don't Please mind. Please do. Of course, I don't <clears throat> so, mind. In 1984, the uh, Congress passed and the president signed a massive uh, bill called the Sentencing Reform Act, which was the result of a really bipartisan, kind of odd bedfellows sort of effort. Um, conservative Republicans, led primarily by a Utah senator at the time named Warren Hatch, and liberal Democrats, led primarily at the time by Massachusetts Senator Teddy Kennedy, both did not like the existing highly discretionary role of federal judges at sentencing. For many of the conservatives, the problem with great judicial discretion at sentencing was sentences that were too lenient, too short. For the liberals, the perceived problem with all that judicial discretion was vast disparities in sentencing across districts. You know, what you got in the Southern District of Florida might be much less than what you'd get in the District of North Dakota for the exact same crime with, you know, the, the salient facts being similar or the same, and racial disparities, racial, ethnic disparities, disparities based on all kinds of um, impermissible, or at least undesirable, you know, both impermissible and undesirable factors in the view of liberal-leaning senators that you couldn't tease out because you just had a judge exercising this broad and often largely unexplained discretion. So you had the, the left and the right come together and part, just a part of the Sentencing Reform Act concerned this problem, perceived problem of discretion in sentencing. What the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984 did to address that issue was create the United States Sentencing Commission and charge it with developing mandatory federal sentencing guidelines that would limit, would cabin the discretion of federal judges. So the Sentencing Commission, newly formed, went to work, um, issued guidelines which became effective starting November 1, 1987. And what those guidelines did, to get more directly to your question, is just set up um, a grid with an x-axis and a y-axis. And the horizontal axis was your criminal history, which the commission said we're gonna have six categories of criminal history, lowest to highest. And then a vertical axis that had what the sentencing commission called your offense level, starting at zero in theory and going up to 32. Um, and that offense level was calculated by starting with a base offense level for every federal crime. This is part of why it took, you know, the better part of three years to promulgate um, these guidelines. So you'd have a base offense level. And then with that base offense level established, 
judges could find either aggravating factors that would increase the offense level or mitigating factors that would decrease the base offense level. There were many more aggravating factors than there were mitigating factors, and that's still true today. Um, so judges could find, could make findings on specific additional facts that would increase or enhance the offense level. And as your offense level went up on the y-axis, you know, usually the criminal history usually isn't much disputed. That's usually discernible. And there are only six categories for that. Occasionally, occasionally there are factual disputes about what counts as a prior conviction and what shouldn't. But usually the real fights when the guidelines were mandatory were over the, the proper offense level. But as the offense level went up, you know, on the on the vertical axis, then you'd look at what the criminal history category was on the horizontal axis, and you'd find where they met mm -hmm. on the grid, and that would give you a range of months. With the low end of months being the bottom of the sentencing guideline range, and the the larger number, the higher number of months being the top end of the sentencing guideline range, and then the guidelines themselves provided that in unusual circumstances, the sentencing judge could do what's called depart, could do an upward departure if the judge thought that the guideline range didn't adequately capture the seriousness of the offense or the seriousness of the past criminal history, could do a downward departure um, if the judge thought the guideline range overstated. Uh, the severity of the offense or the seriousness of the past history, the judge could also do a downward departure if the government asked it to, asked the court to depart downward, usually for cooperation, you know, sort of the snitch reward. Um, I was going to say, how often does that happen? But obviously what you just said makes a lot of sense. Downward departures for cooperation were very, Always. very common. Other reasons for downward departure not sponsored by the government were pretty rare, and upward departures were fairly rare because there were strict criteria by which the judge could depart either way from the guideline range. And normally, that guideline range was mandatory. The judge had discretion to decide where within the guideline range, but it was pretty cabined discretion. You know, a guideline range as in Booker's case, might be 210 months on the low end and 262 months on the high end. Okay, and a lot of these ranges looked like random choices and numbers. I'm sure they weren't quite random, but they were peculiar, you know, numbers. 57 to 71 months, you know, thing, things like that were in our guideline ranges. So, that, but that was the idea. So to get your guideline range up, the judge had to be finding at sentencing aggravating facts that would fit into a reason under the guidelines to increase the offense level and then the guidelines told you exactly how much that aggravating effect increased the offense level was it two points was it four points was it six points one point you know three points whatever it might be the guidelines dictated that and so that's really what was at issue when I talk about, you know, an enhanced sentencing guideline range 
or an offense level, that's what we're talking about here. And again, to bring this back to Freddie Booker, on the jury's guilty verdict, which factually concerned 92 and a half grams of cocaine in a duffel bag, you know, Booker's guideline range, when you figured in his criminal history and the offense level, Booker's guideline range would have been X to Y months. Because the judge found, no, it wasn't 92 grams of cocaine base that was irrelevant conduct. It was well over 600 grams, you know, about sevenfold increase. That drove up the offense level. And then because the judge found, yes, and you also obstructed justice, either by lying to the police when you were arrested, I think, I think that was the basis for obstruction of justice enhancement in Freddie's case. And that added two points to your offense level. So those two, you know, the relevant conduct, the total weight that the judge found of the illegal drug and the obstruction of justice are what bumped Freddie Booker's guideline range up to 360 months on the low end, which is exactly 30 years to life, meaning life without parole, at, you know, natural life on the high end. So Freddie was in the highest possible sentencing guideline range, 360 to life. And it's just kind of surreal just to give some particular, because I just looked up here. I mean, the original sentencing range was 210 months to 262 months, as you originally mentioned, which is about 17 and a half years to 21 years. So based on the finding of aggravated circumstances, it's just pretty wild that um, it just bumped up the range. Well, yes. And ultimately, Judge Shabazz gave Freddie Booker the low end of that higher offense, you know, higher guideline range that he calculated. But the low end was 360 months or 30 years. So the judge's fact findings increased Freddie's sentencing, actual sentence, by almost nine years. You know, from the 262 months, which was the maximum Judge Shabazz could have imposed on the jury's fact findings, up to 360 months, was the, which was the least he could impose once he'd made his own additional fact findings by a preponderance of the evidence. It seems as if a judge in finding the existence of aggravated circumstances um, is held to a lower burden of proof in regards to these facts than a jury would be held? Yes, just the ordinary civil burden of, of persuasion rather than the criminal burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you gave a really interesting um, description of what these two burdens are um, in our 1L torts class. And I was hoping just for the listeners, you can give it again. What is the difference between preponderance of the evidence and um, beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, preponderance of evidence just means more than the other side offered by any quantum. You know, if you think about scales in perfect balance, a preponderance is anything that tips the scale slightly to the side of the party with the burden of persuasion. Um, so, you know, people express this in different ways, 51 to 49, or, you know, tipping the scales ever so slightly, whatever it is. But it just, all it means is something more than the other side's evidence um, suggests or, you know, or, or would lead the fact finder to conclude. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is essentially what it sounds like, which is, you know, the fact finder 
is allowed to have some residual doubt, but not a reasonable doubt. You know, mm -hmm. if if reasonable doubt has been eliminated, a conviction is is acceptable under our you know that highest burden of persuasion. Um, but not if any reasonable doubt remains. In theory, the fact finder then ought to err on the side of acquittal, um, you know, using Blackstone's maxim that it, it's better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent person get convicted. So, you know, that, that proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest burden of persuasion we have in not just in U.S. law, but in English-speaking law. And with very few exceptions, with very few and strange exceptions, it is reserved only for the prosecution's burden in a criminal case. It's not a civil burden of persuasion, again, with very rare and odd exceptions. So I, so just diving into the actual case then, so what did the Supreme Court end up ruling in regard to the district court's judge's finding of enhancing factors that led to um, Booker being sentenced to 30 years. Well, the ultimate holdings in, in Booker were, were fractured and a little bit complicated, okay? Yes, they are. 70-page opinion yeah, with a lot of dissents concurring. Yeah, and actually two separate majority opinions yes. uh, for the court, okay? So, but to, to try to simplify it, the, the court five to four ruled that a fact that increases the maximum possible sentence someone faces for a federal crime must be found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt with one exception only. The judge can continue to find your, your prior criminal history. The judge can continue to decide you know, do you have a past conviction for disorderly conduct or burglary or whatever it might be? And how many prior convictions do you have? That carve out from the Sixth Amendment right to have a jury determine the facts that in turn decide the maximum punishment, that little carve out for prior criminal history dates back at least to 1997 with a case called Almandara's Torres against the United States. And when Apprendi came along in 2000 and started to give real focus to judicial fact-finding that increased maximum sentences, Apprendi just carved out uh, Almandara's Torres and said, yeah, judges can continue to find your criminal history because usually that's not fairly disputable anyway. It's a matter of public record. Okay. Yeah, and I and I don't. I'm not sure. I even obviously, personally, agree with with it, but I do completely understand it. I mean, it's fully quantifiable. So that I'm giving a little too much attention to the exception, but basically, the five one five to four majority in Booker held judges may not find aggravating facts at sentencing that increase the guideline range, the offense level, and thus the guideline range, and therefore increase the maximum possible sentence because the federal sentencing guidelines are themselves mandatory. The judge is bound ordinarily to sentence within the guideline range. So that guideline range can't go up based on 
facts that only a judge has found at sentencing by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the usual fact-finding standard at sentencing. That's one ruling, five to four. The second ruling then also five to four by a different author, Judge Stevens wrote the first majority opinion, Judge Breyer, Justice Breyer, I'm sorry, Justice Breyer wrote the second majority opinion. That uh, second majority held that the, the mandatory quality of the US sentencing guidelines was severable from the Sentencing Reform Act, and that the way to solve this Sixth Amendment flaw that the court had identified with mandatory sentencing guidelines was simply now to sever out the statutory section that compelled the guidelines be mandatory and make them now advisory, make them something that federal district judges should consider but weren't bound to follow. The effect of that then was to make the, the maximum sentence always the maximum number of years that the legislature, the Congress, had attached to the crime in the statute that made the act criminal at all. Um, so you were you you simply no longer had a mandatory um, minimum and maximum set by the guidelines. Rather, you had the minimum set by Congress and the maximum number of years set by Congress. But something that I hadn't considered in this is that there was a disconnect between the range that Congress prescribed in the statutes and the range that was prescribed in the federal sentencing guidelines. And what I'm curious about as well, you mentioned in the beginning that the, the main issue that was preserved in the district court was the issue of sentence, like the enhancement issue. And was this second ruling or the second opinion something that you both expected going into this case? Um, or was it kind of a bit of a surprise? We knew it was a lively possibility. Um... Why did we know that? Well, Justice Scalia had clearly been the intellectual engine behind the Apprendi movement, you know, behind the series of cases beginning with Apprendi. And Justice Breyer had been reluctant, you know, had had been uh, skeptical of Apprendi as, as constitutional jurisprudence and had been a defender of judicial discretion. We also knew, you know, because it was a matter of public record, that before he was appointed to the US Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer had been chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. He, he had been somebody who, whose job was to draft legislation and indeed, he had been an important player in the drafting of the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, working as he did for the Judiciary Committee of the Senate at the time. So he, he was somebody who had actually done much of the drafting uh, that, you know, the statutory provisions that created the United States Sentencing Commission and that envisioned um, the United States Sentencing Guidelines. He, we believed, 
probably was personally invested in the constitutionality of these guidelines in the in the you know in the soundness as a constitutional matter of the sentencing reform act itself and the guidelines it created so you know we and many others in trying you know in trying to game out what what the US Supreme Court might do and what individual justices might do figured that in a sense justice Breyer had skin in the game you know he had he had one of the centerpieces of his earlier career had been creating the legislation that established um, the United States Sentencing Commission and the sentencing guidelines. So, you know, there was a lot of talk, law professors were talking about it, lawyers were talking about it. Would the, would the court find a way to save the guidelines or to what we were calling it at the time was, would we end up with guidelines light by, you know, applying the Sixth Amendment jurisprudence but then sort of salvaging some role for the guidelines by making them advisory rather than mandatory. And a lot of us on the defense side were hoping for a sweeping win. You know, we just want, we didn't like the guidelines. We just wanted the guidelines to go. And if the statute says, you know, this is a zero to 20 year crime, then let the judge pick a number between zero and 20 years. If it's zero to five, same thing. If it's 10 to 30, you know, whatever, right? We on the defense side mostly were in favor of judicial discretion at sentencing, figuring we had other tools with which to try to address racial disparities or ethnic disparities or disparate treatment of immigrants, you know, um, you know, disparities based on sex, whatever they might be. Um, I think that was to be honest, as an aside, a bit of wishful thinking on our part because sentencing disparities based on impermissible factors just have never gone away. Um, but in any event, that's, that's where we were. And you know, I, I suspect that many on the prosecution side viewed guidelines light as you know, better than nothing. Um, and you know, I, the, the, the Justice Department saw the writing on the wall, so to speak. You know, they saw where Apprendi and the line of cases after it was going. And with Blakely striking down the Washington state sentencing guidelines, it wasn't much of a further step to say that the U.S. sentencing guidelines were vulnerable for the same reasons. So the Justice Department, I'm sure, was hedging its bets um, and looking at the possibility of severability of the mandatory quality of the guidelines to preserve advisory guidelines. And that's exactly what happened, uh, again, with a slim, slimmest of possible majorities, five to four, treating the guidelines as advisory and the same slimmest of majorities saying the, the finding of facts that enhance the offense level violates the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Um, and before we dive into the experience with the Supreme Court, I do want to quickly talk about the outcomes associated with U.S. v. Booker. And you've alluded to them, I think, in the beginning in talking about the policy rationale behind the creation of the United States Sentencing Council in 1984, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, um, and as well as some of the concerns of the justices. And just to start us off, I read through... 
after United States v. Booker was decided in 2005, um, the Department of Justice released a report to kind of preliminarily see what the effect of these rulings had on the court systems across the country. And one of their findings was that within only one year of the Booker decision, the number of sentences imposed within the guidelines had dropped um, 62.2%. Um, and they say that it was largely attributable to judges exercising their increased discretion under Booker, um, although there were a small increase in government-sponsored departures as well. There were other downward departures and sentences otherwise below the federal sentencing range, um, and that lower sentences uh, jumped from 5.2% in 2004 to 12.5% in 2005 and six. And it seems as if th this was a desired outcome, at least on the defense side, right? Yes, and I don't have I don't have a command of the statistics. Of you know, I've, I've seen this kind of thing before. You're generally right. You're, I'm sure you're specifically right. At the grass tops level, where I was in 2005, and for 14 more years after that, before I went into full time teaching, um, at the grass tops level, sentences came down. The overall effect was sentences became somewhat shorter as district judges became more comfortable with the idea of their, in, you know, the discretion that Booker returned to them at sentencing and with the advisory quality of the guidelines. Now, there were occasional times where a sentence would get would be longer, you know, where a judge was freed to go higher than the guideline range would have capped the judge at. But those were, I think, far outnumbered by cases in which a judge went below what the floor of the of the guideline range would have suggested, and you know just began to be become more uh, comfortable exercising that traditional discretion that federal judges had at sentencing. So the overall effect was was a downward one um, across the country. And that began pretty quickly after Booker and uh, accelerated for a while, and I think probably has stabilized by this point. I will add, just as a matter of human interest, that while Booker, Freddie Booker himself, became kind of a, a celebrity in federal prison, I mean, other inmates um, knew his name and you know were excited, and you know, he just acquired something of a celebrity status. The decision bearing his name helped him not one bit. He got sent back for resentencing. Um, his, you know, now the judge was bound only by the statutory sentencing range, um, which in his case was 10 years to life on the crime for which he was convicted, with the guidelines being advisory. And Judge Shabazz, who had sentenced him to 30 years, 360 months, the first time under the mandatory sentencing guidelines, decided to sentence him to 30 years or 360 months again as a discretionary matter. So Freddie, Freddie was spared not one day on his sentence by uh, his victory in the US Supreme Court. And 
I did read that. And it is quite unfortunate. I do believe the district court judge was probably a little salty. I do know that district court judges hate getting their rulings appealed. And I would assume that the worst possible outcome as a, as a district court judge in a criminal court is to have your case appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, for ha to have your ruling be overruled, and then to have to retry the case. Um, and I will share, obviously, uh, Freddie Booker spent a significant amount of his 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 life incarcerated, but a little hope, a little bit of hope, he was released in 2019. Correct. 2020, June of 2020. 2020. At age 70, in June of 2020, he was released. I suspect that what his own case in the U.S. Supreme Court didn't do for him, I suspect the pandemic did. Uh, his release date, which was well before you know his sentence would have been um, would have been served in full, um, his re release date coincides with about the time that the Bureau of Prison was releasing people who were exceptionally vulnerable to COVID um, in a compassionate release program. I, I haven't talked to Freddie, but the date of his release, um, when he otherwise would not have been eligible for release, and his age at the time suggests pretty strongly to me that he um, was released because of concerns about his vulnerability as a matter of age, if nothing else, to COVID. I'm just happy he's back. And if Mr. Freddie Booker is listening to this, welcome back, sir. And I hope you are enjoying your freedom because you deserve it. Um, all right. So as I mentioned, I could keep going. I mean, this topic is really fascinating to me. I'm sure it's fascinating to listeners, to you as well. But I want to kind of segue into our part two of Supreme Courting, in which we talk about the experience. So for all the listeners, this is going to conclude part one of the episode. And we will be back with a part two of the episode that dives into, as I mentioned, um, Professor Strang's experience at the Supreme Court, the preparation that went into it as well as just generally what it was like. So thank you for listening on part one, and we'll come back to you with part two shortly. And that is all from us here at the Kit. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team does want to hear from you. And if there is a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at luc.edu. And also visit our Instagram at The Podvocate for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Neka Ugu and Andy Vandenbush. Our senior editors are Casey Callahan and Marcus McNeil. Our associate editors this year are Johannes Alvarez-Rivero, Karan Kushal, Maris Medina, and myself, Ben Recht. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And finally, from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.